Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 30, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. And hey, the Becky Nader and I are back in the saddle again. It's a really, really big saddle. Hi. So we've been away with time with our families and medical stuff and the Simply Jesus gathering. And this is actually like one of the first times we've been in the same room together in a month. Over a month. Because you Over were gone on vacation before I took three weeks off. Wow. Today was the first time I had laid eyes on the that's, Rick Lawrence that's in crazy. over a month. It's crazy. You wouldn't believe how many questions I get about the Becky Nader when I'm out and about. Like, what's she doing today? We're so fascinated with her. What's she eating today? I actually I don't get any of those questions. <laughs> but people are interested in the Becky Nader. So we're back here together, uh, ready to explore an aspect of Jesus' heart that is central to our everyday life. And that is, what is he up to? when we're caught up in a relational struggle. Now, we're going to uh, go at this through the portal of marriage, but it's really any relationship that is close or intimate has a leverage to it that really does matter in our relationship with Jesus. Relationships aren't fundamentally metaphors, they're real. We have real relationships with people, but they are also metaphors. They are contexts for which we learn how to grow and be open, vulnerable, and authentic, um, the kind of the building blocks of intimacy. We learn these things through our intimate relationships. So Jesus is highly interested in our intimate relationships. He sees them as little greenhouses for growing not only the intimacy in the actual relationship, but preparing us for intimacy with him. So he has a lot of vested interest in our intimate relationships. So Becky and I are both contributors to a book that's um, just been released. It's called We, Outrageously Committed to My Marriage. Um, it is, uh, we, we, we are like minor contributors. There's, there's many, 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 many people that have contributed to this, to this book, but it's a book about uh, real marriages living out through real struggles, challenges, trials, pain, you name it, it's represented in the stories that are in, the, in this book, and they're all under the umbrella, the context of what it looks like to live through those struggles when you are following Jesus and you love Jesus. What does that look like? So what Becky and I have done today is we've chosen a story, not our own stories that we contributed, but we've chosen a story, uh, uh, each of us, from the book to read as kind of a bridge into a story about how Jesus interacts with people to bring about growth and, and transformation. So we'll just use these stories as sort of a jumping-off place for talking about the way Jesus is at work right now, transforming us through the kind of uh, uh, greenhouse of our intimate relationships. So Becky's story number one is called The Longest Nights, and it's a story of how a relationship can survive betrayal and the destruction of trust. So Becky's going to read it, and then we're going to uh, connect it to Jesus and talk about it, and how it kind of 
threads its way even into our own stories. So I just want to say this book I am so excited about. I was on the team that was part of developing it from the very beginning. And what I what I kept saying adamantly is I don't want another Christian book about marriage that's just about trite things. Um, I wanted it to be about real struggles that we often t- tend to cover up and try to pretend aren't happening or we are hiding. I wanted us to tell real stories because we know that so many people are going through really, really hard things in their marriage that have more are are more difficult than your husband leaving his socks on the floor every day. So wait, I, wait you got to stop there a second. You just said something that sparked something in me. You said we wanted to tell real stories and. One thing that's I think it's important to point out as we dive into these, uh, unless you're telling real stories about your marriage and other close relationships, you can't have real community. Mm-hmm. It's not possible it's because so because you have not set the proper environment for real community to happen. So real stories are crucial, and that's why we've chosen the stories we have today. So this one is is one of the heavier ones in the book. I wanted to share it because um, I wanted you to see just how real we got in this book. And just some backstory, there was a big group of us that got together in a room and had soup, and, and we told our stories, and I think that was probably one of the most healing nights that I ever had with a big group of women that um, were helping to shape this this book and tell our real stories. So, and this, just to be, just to be clear, it, uh, there are women who've written these stories, men. and there are men as well. We didn't invite them in because you know. Yeah, because there was soup there, there and men soup. would have wanted meat. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so this is called the longest nights, and this is from we. There it was again, that feeling in the pit of my stomach that he wasn't telling me everything. Something was just off. I went to bed, and before falling asleep, I found myself praying this prayer. Jesus, I'm tired of being in the dark. I am tired of being surprised. I'm tired of this process of getting to the truth one layer at a time, like we're peeling back an onion. I just want to know it all. Even if it's too much to deal with, I want the whole truth. I woke up early the next morning with a feeling that I should check my husband's phone. What surfaced was far worse than I'd imagined. He'd been lying to me for years, covering things up. Even when we were in counseling and I thought we were making progress, he was only sharing part of the truth. And what he was covering up was big stuff, like divorce big stuff, deal breaker stuff, illegal stuff. I didn't know how exposed I was, but I suspected it was bad. I changed the locks and closed accounts. I stopped eating and sleeping, crying through the nights I prepared for divorce. It's hard for me to describe the long nights I spent sobbing on the floor. They were so dark that even now when I think of them, I shudder a little bit. But in the midst of the darkness, I, I never for one moment felt that I had to rely on my own strength. I had I had none, so Jesus gave me a supernatural strength that I knew didn't come from myself. I felt complete surrender and total protection. But this protection and surrender didn't shield me from my emotions, grief, anger, betrayal. I felt all of them like waves crashing over me. I wasn't doing well. I wasn't riding above the waves or being content in Jesus. Or was I filled with all of those cliches that spring to my mind here? I was a total mess. The only thing I knew was that I wasn't going to go under. Gradually in the midst of the mess, Jesus started speaking beauty out of ashes to me. 
Other people confirmed this phrase to me in several different ways, which was so good because I knew I couldn't trust my own thoughts during that time. Even my husband started hearing it, like from strangers at the hardware store. Seriously, that happened. I wasn't sure what it meant, but it gave me hope that God was working. It still seemed divorce was inevitable, but maybe beauty out of ashes meant that we would all be healed after this, that healing had already begun. Fast forward to a year later, and we're still married. As it turned out, it took a few more weeks after my initial prayer for the full truth to emerge. Some of my initial fears turned out to be unfounded. We went back to counseling. We're still working through it still getting to more truth. I have to be honest, it's still scary. I feel like the bottom could drop out at any moment. But here's what gets me through, an unwavering confidence that no matter what happens, Jesus will keep my head above water. Even if I lose all my strength, he will give me supernatural protection, just as he did during those first dark nights crying on the floor. And I know that beauty out of ashes is a promise I can trust. I don't know how all of this will be resolved, but I have hope. Jesus can make all things, even the ugliest and scariest of things, beautiful in his way. For me, beauty has already started to sprout in the midst of the rubble. Mm. So uh, there's some things that just kind of pop out to me about this, and one aspect of this story is this sense that Jesus is giving um, this person who's in great grief— and brokenness. I mean, that, that doesn't even cover the basis. Brokenness is, seems shallow compared to what where this place is. Uh, but they're saying, Jesus gives me supernatural strength that I knew wasn't coming from myself. And what, it's, what we need to clearly point out here is that that supernatural strength did not fix the immediate problem. So one of the fallacies of this is what we desperately want in these situations is for it to all go away yeah. and for everything to be better. That's human. There's nothing wrong with longing for that. But often the situation doesn't go away. So what is Jesus really doing here? And when this person is sharing so honestly about uh, Jesus bringing supernatural strength, they're really saying, I didn't go under. I had the ability the miraculous ability—you could compare it to walking on water, where Jesus is walking on water past the boat late at night in the storm, and he invites the disciples to come out come out with him, and only one goes, Peter, and he climbs over the boat and he sinks. This kind of supernatural strength, I think, is the same as that. What has the power to allow me to walk on top of the water in the middle of a storm? The storm doesn't go away in that story— I mean, Peter gets freaked out because he's sinking in the middle of a storm in the middle of the ocean. This is a dangerous situation. And what Je- and then Jesus reaches out and touches him, and he's not sinking anymore. But had Peter been able to walk to Jesus in the midst of this storm, I think it would have been the same kind of release of supernatural strength that this person is talking about, because they were walking in the midst of a horrible storm. So the storm doesn't go away, it's not fixed, but your ability to stay afloat in the storm is what this story is really about. You know, one of the things that when you're talking about just this time when you're, you know, just barely keeping yourself above water, I don't know if you're even walking on water, but I've, I've personally had times like this in my life and in my marriage 
where I just felt like waves were crashing around me. And when we're talking about relationships, which by the way, um, in August, we're going to be focusing all of our content on relationships in, in the context of marriage, but also in the context of your relationship with God and also in the context of your relationship with your friends um, and in the community that you have around you. But when you're in these times, you, you establish such a strong relationship with Jesus. It's like there's nothing more um, intimate than in a pla- being in a place where you feel like you're about to die um, and having him come in and just steadily say, I'm here. You're not going under. I'm not going to let that happen. I am here for you. And it's such a strengthening time. And it is horrible as these times in marriage are. And as much as we don't want to talk about them or, you know, wish that they don't happen to us, they can really be such a great time to really lean in and experience Jesus in a way you've never experienced him. And I think that that is something profound to bring up. The theme of this particular piece that you just read is is um, beauty out of ashes. And what what we want in the midst of the ashes is to, as I said before, get out of those ashes as quickly as possible. And there is this dynamic that you're talking about, though, that there's a chapter in the Jesus-centered life called Needing Him to Know Him, and the point I'm trying to make there is that when we are in desperate need of Jesus is usually the time we are knowing Him um, more deeply, because when you're, you're desperately dependent on someone, you're paying better attention to the context and feedback and conversation in your relationship. And when you're desperately dependent on Jesus in the midst of relational darkness, you access um, aspects of your relationship with him that doesn't often happen in an everyday way. And I think part of this is, um, uh, this has been kind of a a rhythm in my life over the last, I'd say, decade, uh, where I'm always asking Jesus, "Can can I learn to be desperately dependent on you when I don't have to be. I think this is part of what it means to grow in him. That's a really good prayer. Yeah, because we don't want to go there to this place mm-hmm. of darkness, because it, I just talked to some people at the Simply Jesus Gathering who've been through hell and back over the last 15 months, and I was asking about their experience, and they had their two kids there, and their two kids were also sharing about what it's been like for them not having an income for 15 months and all this stuff that was going on in their lives. And the husband said, with a smile on his face, he was kind of beaming, as he was talking about the horrible things they've had to live through, he was simultaneously talking about how they've never felt more alive and adventurous and and experiential in their relationship with Jesus. So you have this kind of sandwich of horror and beauty, ashes and beauty, all in the same place. And we read ashes into beauty as a kind of a linear progression, but actually the beauty kind of grows up in the ashes. They're together. It's not like a linear path. It's more like uh, the ashes are, are like a, some kind of a rich growing soil for beauty when Jesus, when, when Jesus gets in there as a gardener and starts to grow the beauty. But one of the one of the dangers, I think, when you're in these situations is I think that sometimes we have this little nagging that's not from Jesus. That's like, whoa, what'd you, what you what have you been doing? 
you know, what, what have, what have you done to deserve this? You know, God must be. It's the Job's. It's the Job's friends. Yep. Point of view. Yeah, Job. uh, Well, all this stuff is happening. Clearly, you have done something major in secret. Yeah. So you know, and that so that could be why sometimes we don't tell people about what's going on. Um, in these times is because we're afraid of being judged by someone else, that they're going to think that about us, that we're less holy than they are, and so we try to, to cover it all up. You, you point out something here I think that is is strange, but it's so true. Pain is embarrassing, and, and if it's repeated pain and cascading pain or struggle, then it gets really embarrassing. Like, you can feel it in your community of people, like, well, what's what's wrong with you that you're attracting this much problem? And that's what we deeply fear, that that uh, we're, we're embarrassed to show it because it, we're afraid that it says something about us in the midst of mm-hmm. it. And I think the thing to, to focus on here is, is how this theme of, of beauty out of ashes is like breathing for Jesus. I mean, there, there is nothing more central to the to the moment-by-moment reality of Jesus, other than him bringing beauty out of ashes. That's pretty much all he does. And you can, we can experience this ourselves in our life with him, but we know, even if you look at the first five chapters of Matthew, for instance, I'm writing about this in this book I'm writing, Spiritual Grit. I looked at the first five chapters of, of Matthew in a little section I'm writing about how Jesus brings beauty out of ugly, and the first five chapters of Matthew, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, he starts out, he's give, he, uh, an unwed mother gives birth to him in this uh, basically uh, messy, dirty place that's for animals. He's, he's laid in a food trough, and it's a nasty, smelly kind of cave that he's in. There's an ugly place where the most beautiful person ever in the world is born in the ugliest place, you can imagine. And then quickly after his birth, King Herod is paranoid, and he he orders all the young male Jews in the vicinity of Bethlehem to be killed. It's called the slaughter of the innocents. So Jesus' immediate reality as a, as a toddler is that his birth has caused the slaughter of many other toddlers. What an ugly, ugly thing. And then soon into his ministry, I mean, what defines his ministry right away is all of these broken, lame, marginalized people, he's healing them. He's surrounded by ugly and broken from the very earliest part of his ministry. So so turning beauty from ugly is is just like you know deep within his deep within his nature. And then you could even go to his first major teaching which is the beatitudes in Matthew 5, 6 and 7 and it's remarkable how many of the beatitudes the blessed are those who are really about beauty out of ugly. So, you know, the, the for instance the uh, the poor, the poor are blessed because they get the kingdom of heaven as their reward, which really means they get dependence, a dependent relationship, just like we were just talking about, Becky. The reward is this close, intimate relationship, or the, the, the people who mourn get comfort, or the humble get a huge inheritance, or the wronged get justice, or the persecuted also get the kingdom of God. So this, this rhythm of what looks like ugly is actually a pretext for me to bring beauty into it. This, this kind of rhythm is central, central to Jesus. So the thing that I've realized in my own life about this kind of beauty and what we're talking about right now, when you're in the ugly, 
it's really hard to see the beauty. In fact, it's almost profane for anyone to talk about the beauty in the midst of your ugly because the ugly is so real. But there's a common pattern I've noticed in myself and others I talk to about this, that when they get a little bit of distance from the ugly, it's almost like they're, they're kind of cresting up a hill, and they can look back on the landscape they've been in, and they go, oh, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. It's like that scene in The Shack. Yeah. For those of you who've seen The Shack, where... It's the most powerful Yeah, where, the where the main character, Mac, is elevated above this garden, and the garden is really a picture, a metaphoric picture of his own heart. And he's down in the weeds, and he sees only chaos and confusion, but when he's lifted above it, he sees this beautiful garden full of extraordinary patterns of flowers. And it's a real picture of only in retrospect can we see the beauty that Jesus is weaving into our ugly, and we need a little time and space away from the event itself to be able to see that. So in the end, what he's trying to do here is when he brings beauty out of ugly, he's he is feeding our trust in him, that even in the darkness and when nothing makes sense, he's promised, I am here, I'm not gone, I'm a gardener, and I'm working on it. I'm trying to bring beauty here. You'll see, so hang with me, just don't leave. Hang with me. And I love how this story says the real strength that Jesus brought was the ability not to leave, to hang in there until the revelation of his beauty started to, to appear. And if you're in that situation, um, you know, we want, we're going to have some practical stuff at the end of this episode. And part of that is we wanted to tell some of these stories because we want you to know that on this podcast, there's no story that can't be told. Um, and so if any of you are on, on the pigs page or if you reach out to us, there's just no story that you can't tell if you need if you need to. So. And there's no story that intimidates Jesus. I mean, there's there's nothing that's going on in your life that if you brought it to him, he'd go, oh my gosh, I've never dealt with that. Well, that's just not true. He he. There's nothing that makes Jesus go, oh man, I don't know what to do about that. He He's an artist. He'll take whatever artistic material we bring to him, and mostly we think of it as ugly stuff, but he takes it and makes something beautiful. So let me read uh, story number two from this book, We. Again, it's called We, Outrageously Committed to My Marriage, just released. This, this particular story is called Confronting the Boogeyman. Here we go. My mom and I have a complicated relationship. For much of my childhood, she was one person in public and a very different person in the privacy of our home. The source of her split personality was her alcoholism, a condition she hid with relative effectiveness except from those closest to her. Now, alcoholism touches everything in a family. For instance, when I was a child, I could never predict what kind of mood she'd be in. Some days she was friendly, funny, and warm. Others she was distant and passive-aggressive, doling out the silent treatment without explanation. Because of this, I never felt comfortable having friends over. Would they meet friendly mom or silent treatment mom? I couldn't be sure. Of course, her drinking affected my parents' marriage, placing a strain on it that my father handled with grace until eventually it was just too much, and they divorced. I was a young adult at the time and promised myself that whoever I married wouldn't be an alcoholic. So when I discovered a few years later that the husband I'd recently married had a drinking problem, I was filled with shame. How did I marry into this, I thought? How could I not recognize the signs? I also wondered why God let me 
marry this man. I prayed fervently about whether I should marry him, and I felt confident that God blessed the marriage. So when the reality of my husband's drinking surfaced, I asked a lot of questions, like, did I miss God's choice for me? Did I choose wrong? Will I be sentenced to a dysfunctional marriage like my parents? Am I destined for divorce? So one day over coffee, I was sharing some of these questions with a friend I trusted, because she seemed to hear God's voice so clearly. She looked at me and said, you realize that your marriage is different from your parents, right? And that God is telling a different story through your life? I believe it's a hopeful story. I see a lot of love between you and your husband, and I see Jesus growing your faith and softening your heart during this process. So don't make drinking a boogeyman. Jesus can do surprising things. Well, her words were like a breath of fresh air. I realized that from the minute I discovered my husband's drinking, I'd assumed we'd end up like my parents. But that wasn't fair. We were a different couple. Even more, I knew my friend was right. There was a lot of love between my husband and me. And unlike my parents, we communicated well, even about his drinking. It wasn't fair of me to disregard all we had going for us because of one problem. I'd been worrying that I'd chosen wrong, but did I expect that choosing right meant never encountering problems and flaws, sometimes big ones? In light of these new insights, that assumption seemed naive. In retrospect, I can see how easily I'd believe that choosing right would protect me from hard stuff in marriage. This belief had put a lot of pressure on me to make the right choice, which is why I felt so ashamed when I realized that I hadn't done my job well enough. But I had prayed, and I had made the choice to marry my husband in faith. Doubting was tempting, but choosing love and faith was better for my heart and better for my marriage. So I continue to choose love, and I will not allow the boogeyman to scare me. I love this story. I, I Particularly, I love it because I think that anyone who is, has gone through marriage problems that are really hard, they probably at one point or another have said in their mind, did I choose wrong? Mm -hmm. Did I make the wrong choice? Is it too late for me? Because embedded in there is... If something's hard, we must have, it must not be good. Yep. If something's hard, it must not be good. I wasn't good. listening to God or, you know, I didn't, it, it's too late for me. What am, you know, what am I going to do? And, and, and that is just the enemy. He just, he loves that question. He loves to kind of root that in. And I know I've even experienced this, like, how did I miss this? And what would people think about me if they realized, um, you know, what was going on. I also loved, and this, I wrote, um, one of the devotions that I wrote in here um, is about friendship. It's called Friends. And man, I have to tell you, in my life and in my marriage, when things have gotten hard, the right friends have turned everything around. Mm. Um, and for the, the same reason that you see in the story, when I expected them to be disappointed or to judge me, I was always so surprised when they would say things like, wow, you know, I realize that you feel that way, but here's what I'm observing about you and your husband. And it's, wow, this sweet story. And I, you guys aren't like that. And I think that you can make it. Um, they point you back to your marriage. They help you see the bigger picture. You know, and Becky, what's, what's so important about what you're saying right now is that 
is that those friends you're describing are not fixing your problem. No. They're recontextualizing your yeah. problem. They're they're telling a different story. They can observe from a different place. Yeah. So each of us are living in a story, yep. and we're the narrator of our own story. And often, the narration we provide for our own story is not true. It's a lie. It's myopic. It doesn't see the truth. But we believe it because we're telling it. And when a friend who's paying attention to your story can say, that's not the story I see here. Here's the story I see. It can help you to live a different story. You just changed the direction of where you're looking slightly, and it can and it can look completely different as, as soon as you do that. And I love that her friend kind of was like, you know, uh, you're not your parents. And your parents had other problems that had nothing to do with drinking. And you don't have those problems, so why don't you focus on the strengths that you see in your marriage? Yeah, I think uh, I was thinking about what is this story really about at its core, and I, for me, I think the story is really about a kind of a fatalism in our relationship, uh, in a sense that we're doomed to repeat the patterns yes. of our family, and our that that this sort of is like an anvil hanging over our head. That we, you know, and it comes out for me like you know, sometimes my wife will say something like. Oh, that's just the way your dad says things, or that's just the way your dad would react in that situation. And I have this immediate defensiveness inside because I don't want that mm -hmm. generational inheritance. And I and if she points out that something is just like my dad, then it taps into this deep fear in me that, oh, maybe she's right. Mm -hmm. Maybe I am just like my dad. And I think in this story, she ha this this person has the same kind of fear, like... If I'm just like my dad, then I'm doomed to be, to, to have a life that ends up just like that. And it made me think of um, Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, this um, older man who's a religious leader and a Pharisee, much respected in the community, who sneaks in the darkness to go talk to Jesus because he doesn't want to do it in the light, but he's absolutely curious about Jesus, and he's hungry to find out what Jesus is about, because everything Jesus has said has intrigued him. So he sneaks, uh, meets with Jesus at night, and um, Jesus basically says right off the bat, you know, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, um, what? what? I'm an old man. Are you, are you talking about me going back into my mother's womb? What, what are you talking about? He's very black and white in his response to Jesus, and Jesus is like, what, you're a teacher and you don't understand metaphor? No, no. You, ha you are born of a human mother, but I'm saying you're going to need a second birth, a birth of the Spirit. And if you take Jesus at his word metaphorically, he's saying, we, we have to be—again, I'm writing this book called Spiritual Grid, and I'm writing about this process of what does it mean to be born of the Spirit. Take the metaphor seriously. It means you're born as an infant in the Spirit— and you grow up as a toddler in the Spirit, and you become an adolescent in the Spirit, and then you become an adult, fully functioning adult in the Spirit. And all of us are at some place along this continuum. Some of us are toddlers, some of us are adolescents, and some of us are fully formed adults. And the expectations of the Spirit, who we've been born of, are different, depending on where you are on that continuum. If you're a fully functioning adult in the Spirit, there's a lot of expectations and responsibility put on you because, you know, you're at that place. And if you're just an infant, the Spirit does a lot of work for you <laughs> to, to help you, because the point is to, to grow up in the Spirit. So, so the thing I want to point out here, though, is 
Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, when you're born again, you are given a fundamentally new identity. This isn't just metaphor, this is real. When we are grafted into Jesus, as he talks about in the Gospels, where we're a branch, uh, a dead branch grafted into the living vine, what we get is his life when we're grafted into him. We get his DNA. We are, we are literally part of the royal family at that point, because that's what he's inviting us into. He's saying, no longer are you servants, I call you friends, and later he calls us sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. We are part of his family. That's our real identity. That's what truly does mark us. And what's true, though, is that we are quite tempted to live out of this older identity that we've grown so used to. But it isn't the fundamental truth about who we are anymore. That's the difference. When Paul says he's wrestling with his old nature and his new nature, he's really saying, I have a new identity, but I'm quite tempted to go back to the ruts that my mind is used to. And so Jesus is essentially saying to Nicodemus, you, you get a new identity, and then the life then becomes about living out, out of that new identity. And so whatever generational patterns you have in your life, those do not define you. They may be tempting for you to walk down those paths, but they are not what truly identifies who you are anymore. They're not true about you. So even for me, when my wife sees something in me that reminds her of my dad, and I'm defensive, it's because I, I don't want those patterns. Of, and, but what I say to myself in the midst of my defensiveness that helps me to regain perspective is, no matter what she just saw in me, that's not the truest thing about me. The fact that I am tempted toward old patterns does not mean that that, that is true about my, my renovated, born-again identity. And so I, rem- I simply remind myself of who I really am in those moments. I think the other thing, too, is that when you reach out and you talk to people about what's going on in your marriage, um, particularly, you know, if you reach out to people who have maybe been married for a long time, you'll find out that they've actually survived a lot of the same things. (laughs) And you'll be shocked because, you know, in our head, we're like, well, they have the perfect marriage. Nothing ever happens bad in their marriage. Um, but when you can hear that wise perspective and see people who were outrageously committed to their marriage and they made it through this really hard, hard thing, all of a sudden you go from a feeling of, I, I don't know if I can survive this, or I don't know if I can live with this for very much longer to, I can do this. Other people have walked in this path before and they've seen restoration, and so I'm going to keep going, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to be diligent, and I'm going to I'm going to ask God to restore what is here, and it gives you hope. So, yeah, and I'd say if if you see another relationship, an intimate relationship that looks pristine, that one of two things are happening: either that's a facade, mm-hmm. and they're and they're not showing the real mess that goes on underneath the facade. So that's one way. The other, the other possibility, more dire in my view, is that there's never really any real intimacy in that relationship in the first place, because two broken people who commit to each other, in the case of marriage, commit to each other for life, two broken—and I'm not using that word lightly here—broken people who commit to one another in intimacy for a, for a lifetime, if there's not messiness 
involved in that, then there's something wrong. There, there's something not true about that vulnerability because when we are vulnerable with another broken person and we ourselves are broken, we are going to experience pain, di- disillusionment, heartbreak. All of these things are just part of it because we're being restored into wholeness, but it's not like flipping on a light switch. So my reaction to pristine relationships is, A, I haven't seen them well yet, or B, they don't have any real intimacy in their in their marriage. They keep that on a kind of a surface level, so no real mess ever really happens. So I'm in a roundabout way trying to say, it's okay if you have chaos and mess in your closest relationships. It may simply be an indicator that you are um, finding your way toward authenticity and vulnerability in that relationship. So so this, this book, We, is a collection of real stories from real marriages. They involve real people, like Becky and I, who are trying to follow Jesus and finding greater intimacy with Him through the leverage of this most intimate relationship they have in life. And so that just necessarily means it's messy and unpredictable, full of twists and turns. It's not formulaic. And, you know, it, that's just like our relationship with Jesus. All of those things characterize our, our relationship with Jesus, too. So when people say they want to grow in their faith or grow as a Christian, I think these are well-meaning descriptions, but they're not really accurate. Jesus makes it clear that he's after much more than Christianity, if that makes sense. He's, he's after an intimate relationship, which means he's after a messy, vulnerable, risky kind of intimacy in his relationship with us. Uh, he doesn't want us to just grow in our faith. That's a safe way of saying what he really wants. He, he wants something uh, much deeper than that. So, so it, another way of saying that is that the life he wants with us is really more about the heart than the head. The head can be a pathway to the heart, but in the end, we make our deepest, most intimate commitments at the heart level, and that's that's what he's really uh, after. And nowhere is the heart more easily accessed than our in our own intimate relationships. So, so let's let's uh, Becky and I we're going to kind of close out here with a few things that we can live into as we pursue Jesus in the midst of our relational challenges and struggles. So, and I think the first thing for me is to start by dragging everything that you're hiding into the light. I mean. A lot of these stories you'll see if you get if you pick up a wee, um, the 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 linchpin of the story is when the thing that was in the dark comes into the light. It's the horrible part of the story, like the ah it makes you wince part of the story, but it's actually where things start to change, and nothing will change unless the thing that's in the dark comes into the light. So for for me, that's the first step. What is it in your relationship that has remained in the dark? What is it that you both know? is there in the dark, but you won't talk about. Find a way to drag it into the light. And I know what this means. It means messing up your life. But it's actually, in, to use Jesus's phrase, losing your life to gain your life. It may feel like you're losing your life in the moment, but where you're headed is to gain your life, a life that you were meant to live. So so the first step, drag drag what's in the darkness into the light. And and that might actually mean that you have been living a, a really hard marriage for a while, and you haven't told anyone else. That's good. Um, I, I personally had gotten myself in, into a situation like that, believing that, you know, nobody wanted to hear about my problems, or they wouldn't understand, or nobody had these problems, and 
when I just started getting real honest with people about what was actually happening, I was so shocked at um, how much just doing that helped bring light into all of it. It just, it brought light back into me and I felt like I could um, keep moving. So find um, some friends that you can trust um, and and get it out. Tell yeah, them. That's actually the second thing we want to talk about. Find community, even if it's only one other couple or one other person where you can really be honest. And Becky and I were talking about this before we got onto the mic, that uh, you hear this a lot. Just find find some friends that you can really be authentic with. And it kind of drives me crazy now because it sounds like that's easy to do. And we know it's not easy to do, or it's often not easy to do, to find people that you can truly be, to, to do what you just said, Becky, is to share your story in reality. So let's just pause here for a second and talk about how do you actually go about that? If you're starting from a dead stop, you don't have anyone in your life that you feel like you can drag stuff into the light with, what do you do? Well, I think, you know, first of all, there's a couple of things I say a lot, um, not just about, you know, sharing marriage was, but just anything hard in your life. Um, you need to make sure that you can trust them not to shame you further into whatever's happening. And in this case, that they're not going to shame your husband. There are, are particular people that I know that I can't talk to about my husband because they will permanently have an opinion of him that will never change again. And that does not help your marriage. You know, you what will happen is you'll stop hanging out with those people if you decide to stay with your spouse and, and work it through. The other thing I would say is that you need to have people who aren't fragile, that can handle whatever hardness it is, and that they're just, it's going to roll right off of them. All right, this is what we're into, and we can handle it. I was just going to say that, that I think even as you're saying this, you're describing a certain kind of person. Yeah. And, and so, uh, well, how do you find that certain kind of person? Well, you... You keep your ears and eyes open because if you listen to the way people talk, it's true. Whether it's from whether you're listening to uh, somebody speak at church, for instance, or in your small group, or you just overhear somebody at work, or there's so many different ways. If you're paying attention to the way people talk, you can pick up at what level of vulnerability and authenticity these people live their lives. And you want to look. For, you want to look for people that are used to, in a very relaxed way, talking about real things in their life in a real way. Yeah. You want to avoid. They're vulnerable. You want to avoid people who talk in plastic ways. They're not gossips. You don't. Yeah. You don't witness them gossiping. Uh, another one that I would say is that I think this is a good litmus test. If you ha- you don't want to share this with someone who will their first instant reaction will be to go to the divorce word. Uh, not that there's not times when that isn't an appropriate um, course of action. That's not at all what we're talking about here today. But you don't want that to be the first thing. You know, you want someone who wants to say, let's see how, you know, let's try and keep this marriage together. And they don't just automatically say, all right, you can move in and you, you know, you need to get out of this. And they're not, you know, forcing you into that. That was really important to me in particular. And I paid attention to people when they were talking and, I would I would witness people who quickly went to that as a solution for everything. And mm. and when you're in that place and you're not ready to give up, you don't want someone who's going to be pushing you and maybe even pressuring you to feel like you have to move towards divorce. That's good. And, and just one last little thing about that, too. When you're paying attention to people around you, 
you'll will, you will notice when a hard thing comes up how certain people react uh, to that. Like they change the subject to the weather. (laughs) Well, it could be that. Oh, I was going the positive route here. When you notice certain people uh, responding to that in a very relaxed way, they're just relaxed. It doesn't seem to kind of startle them, and they're not trying to fix it. There's not a desperate panic in them. They're just relaxed. I just heard it simply Jesus, by the way, uh, uh, a description that Dallas Willard gave of his one-word description of Jesus, like if you met him face-to-face, what would you experience about him more than anything else? And his word was relaxed. Mm -hmm. I just love that, because Jesus is fundamentally relaxed as we relate to him. So you want to find people who also are fundamentally relaxed in the midst of hard things. Also, uh, there's if you witness people who ask permission to give advice, you know, that's one thing that I notice. It's interesting. You know, even if you are coming to vent and you're maybe you've even said, like, I really need help. If they still take the time to say, you know, you don't have to take this advice or if you're not comfortable with me giving you advice or, you know, I do have you even want my advice? Yeah, I have something to share with you, but I don't have to, if you don't want me to, that is a person who's being super cautious of respecting you as the person in charge of your life. And maybe they, maybe they're dead right in what they have to say, but they're still giving you the permission to make your own choices and decisions about it. So another thing that uh, that, we've, uh, that we want to throw out to you here as you're pursuing this is consciously depend on Jesus. Now, we said that this desperate dependence on Jesus, yeah. we come to know him best, and but consciously depend on Jesus to help him do what you can't do. Let me just give you a very simple way to do this. This is not rocket science. Dependence on Jesus, for me, looks like this. Help me, Jesus. Help me. Help me, Jesus. Jesus, I need your help. Jesus, I don't know what to do. Please help me. It's a refrain that is soft underneath the rhythms of my life. When I feel anxiety about facing a difficult situation, I simply repeat that over and help me, Jesus. You're my. I love that uh, line from the original Star Wars movie where... Um, uh, Luke is watching this kind of 3D video of Princess Leia, and I'll, I, for some reason I'll never forget the way this was framed, but Leia is as asking Obi-Wan Kenobi for help via this little video, and she says, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're our only hope. And that is the exact same phrase I use with Jesus, help me, Jesus, you're my only hope. And if it's a refrain in your life, then it reminds you of your dependent relationship, and it makes that connection real. So the way I the way this works for me is simply when I'm aware of the tension in me, of, of the fear in me, of the struggle in me, of the tears that haven't yet come out yet, that I that's an indicator for me to simply breathe underneath whatever I'm doing. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Okay, the last thing we wanted to say is just embrace your born-again reality. Remember the Nicodemus story, in that Jesus has spoken over you that if you've committed your life to him, you have a, a spiritual birth that's involved with that, and you are somewhere on the continuum of your spirit spiritual life with him. You're an infant, toddler, adolescent, or adult, somewhere along that continuum. But the key thing there is that that's your new identity. It's your true identity, and one thing you can do, I've already said this before, you can refuse to live out of your old identity. When you see it creep in, when you see the patterns creep in, you can say, 
hey, that's not my real identity. I re-embrace the truth about my, my true identity, that I'm, I'm a member of the royal family now. That's who I really am. And I reject that old identity as insinuating that that's what's true about me now. I reject it. Well, we encourage you to pick up a copy of We. You can get it on mylifetree.com or also on Amazon or your local Christian bookstore, Lifeway. This book, we've just read a couple of these, but we have to say, again, there was many contributors to this devotion. There's 52 devotions, and they cover a wide variety. There's people who got divorced. Um, There's people who stayed. There are people who are not on the same page about faith. Maybe they, their husband is not a Christian or their wife is not a Christian. So this covers a wide variety. If you are, yourself are struggling in your marriage, this is a great devotion. Or if you know someone who is going through a hard time in their marriage, these stories are very healing. And I, I want to also say that there's devotions attached to each of them, but we purposely did not give any advice in this book. This is not an advice book on how you should live out your marriage. This is simply allowing Jesus in through other people's stories of their marriage. Amen. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can find out more information about the things we talked about here today with you know added detail on the JesusCenteredLife.com page. You can find our podcast section, and you're looking for Season 2, Episode 30. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play for all the latest podcasts. We'll talk next time. Bye.